1: Welcome everyone. As a listener of this podcast, you probably know very well the importance of being active throughout the day. The challenge is just how to actually get it done in a busy daily life and a static standing has also its own downsides. There might be a solution for you. A treadmill desk from Germany called Walkolution. What is a treadmill desk? In short, a workstation that allows you to walk slowly while you work at your desk. But in walker case, it is treadmill without the motor, so it's silent, and you decide the speed, as you are the engine of the treadmill. It also has sliding integrated desk and backrest, so you can have several different postures and can avoid overloading parts of the body for extended periods of time. At least for me, different activities and postures just fit better with certain work tasks, and Walk enables natural flow between posters. I've been testing the treadmill myself and it simply delivers. Every detail is thought through. So I'm glad as we can now offer Walk Desk Treadmill for the listeners of this podcast with 10% discount. To get the discount, use the code SITLESS, one word written together in the store of WalkAllusion.com. That is written walk as in walking and allusion like the second part of revolution or evolution. And now it's time for the introduction of the guest of today's episode. We are going to have a very interesting episode as we are talking about physical activity among individuals with autism. Our today's guest has done his master's degree in physical education and PhD in rehabilitation sciences in University of Toronto. Currently, he's working as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center of Addiction and Mental Health. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Patrick Chakura. Would you like to tell about your professional and academic journey this far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've had what I would call an untraditional route to doing autism and physical activity research. Um, autism so far has been really heavily researched in psychology, um, also kind of the biological sciences. But I did my training in physical education, um, both as an undergraduate and then um, in my master's. And initially was training to be a PE teacher during my undergraduate. And during one of my school placements, I was working with a student with autism who often was sitting on the sidelines on their own, wasn't really engaged in class. Uh, that to me was really interesting in a way because I was not sure as a young teacher um, learning how to teach, I didn't know how to engage a student. We weren't really trained uh, in this area very well. And when I asked my mentor teacher, you know, does a student always sit out? Is it uncommon for people with autism not to be active? And he just said, yeah, it's just, it's just the way they are. They just aren't interested in activity. Uh, for whatever reason, that answer didn't really stick with me. And it kind of bothered me a little bit where I was a, a little annoyed to, to think that, you know, I can't do anything to engage the student along with other people with autism potentially and when i turned to the literature uh, in 2010 there were about only 10 studies published uh, in physical activity and autism in general and because of that that was really kind of my interest and inspiration to start doing more physical activity research for my masters and then in my phd i specifically looked at um, physical activity participation in kids parents and clinicians in autism and we also did a province-wide survey um, to look at if kids were active and what they're doing to be active and unsurprisingly across the province of ontario and canada uh, many of the kids were not active so since then i've tried to bridge that work into some more work um, in physical activity and mental health but that's mm. how i got to where i am today
1: mm. so so could you tell more about autism, There, there is probably more to it than what Dustin Hoffman acts to, acts to have in the Rain Man movie. So,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And since that movie, autism and the definition of autism has changed so many times and is continually evolving. Um, our knowledge just continues to change so quickly. Um, but autism is now, the technical term would be autism spectrum disorder. Um, and that's in the DSM 5 um, manual of mental health um, diagnoses. And the core impairments that involve autism are kind of difficulties in communicating with others, whether it's verbal or whether it's using kind of body language, having difficulties in social interaction. So people being able to understand social cues or understand social situations and have kind of restricted and repetitive behaviors and interests. So This could be something like a complete fascination about something and only having a very narrow and limited knowledge about a particular topic or a few topics without having more knowledge or understanding of other things. So one of the youth that I've worked with in Toronto, he can name you every single um, public transit, bus, subway, and streetcar route we have. But if you ask him about any sort of things outside of those interests, such as history or such as even what he did yesterday... can't really give you that knowledge Uh, what is interesting about autism is is that it's a spectrum and we say spectrum because it's really really wide-ranging some people have um, many different impacts across different areas so like i said some people might have issues with language other people might have issues with sensory um, challenges such as being sensitive to lights or noise or heat or pain or touch and other people have behavioral challenges and so what makes it really hard to research, um, but also makes our job worth worthwhile, is understanding how are the presentations so vast. And then you put that into the physical activity context, and you can imagine that trying to develop PE programs or sport programs for individuals with such wide ranging abilities traditionally um, has been a challenge. But I think that's mm-hmm. where we step in and research to try and move that to the next frontier.
1: Hmm. So, so basically, you mentioned that now it's defined as autism disorder spectrum. And did I got it right that there's problems with or difficulties with communication, social interaction, and then kind of maybe a narrow interest?
0: Yeah, narrow and kind of repetitive behavior. So they'll do the same thing over and over. So one of the classical kind of psychology tests we use for diagnosis would be um, an example of a child lining up their cars and trains, let's say, if it's a, um, in a very particular way. So they have to be in a straight line or they have to be in a certain order. And oftentimes, if they're not in that order, um, there's kind of a hard time understanding why it's that way. And then there's usually kind of a behavioral meltdown. And so, again, mm-hmm. there's this like a, almost like a, what I would call hyper focus on, on certain things and certain attention to details. While other attention to details are lacking, such as, for example, social communication skills or being able to regulate behavior and emotion.
1: Mm, yeah. And and how, how do you diagnose autism?
0: So it's traditionally being diagnosed through kind of observation of behaviors and what we would call like the classic core features that we just diagnosed, that we just talked about. So oftentimes, at least in the Toronto and Canada context, uh, you'll have a psychologist or or someone who's trained um, based on these kind of characteristics to come in, meet them in the lab. Uh, oftentimes, some of the risk factors that are identified early on is a child not talking. So oftentimes that around 12 to 18 months, um, if a child's not talking, that's usually kind of one sign um, that parents become usually concerned in general. And then if you bring them to the physician and if there's other behavioral difficulties happening at the same time, Then you kind of send them more for a broader kind of diagnostic assessment. Um, But that's generally the process. It is messy because it is, you know, mainly a psycho and behavioral based disorder. And there is no necessarily biological marker we can look for to identify the autism. So Down syndrome, which is another um, disability, we know that there's an extra chromosome on one of the pairs. Autism doesn't have that, right? So it's really based on observing. Um, psychology and behavioral issues and even though we're doing a lot of biology work into genetics and we know genetics are somehow implicated we don't know for example which genes are necessarily ruling out autism or not
1: so it's messy mm-hmm. it's really it's really messy mm-hmm. and and not not much research as you said so so how how are the physical activity levels among individuals with autism uh, so
0: what we're seeing across the world is this general trend of low activity levels. Um, so initially in 2010, there were only about 10 studies, uh, mainly coming out of the U.S. about their activity levels. Now there's there's more coming across the world from Dubai to Canada, and our study that I did for my PhD work was the first one in Canada to look at their activity levels. And what we found, and what's also consistent across the world, is that uh, they are less likely to participate in activity compared to their peers. So less likely to participate in school sports and school activities, less likely to participate in community activities, and just overall uh, movement totals in terms of time. It's also lower than their age-related peers. So what the challenge is, though, is that we're seeing as adults with autism become, sorry, as children with autism become adults with autism, because the autism doesn't go away, per se, those activity levels also remain low. So we almost have a whole lifespan approach that we have to take to this and to say, okay, kids with autism are often inactive and also become inactive in adulthood and during adolescence. And so what is the trajectory that are causing these barriers um, to make them inactive across the lifespan? And before we never used to really think about adolescence and adulthood. We always used to put a lot of effort into childhood uh, but now we're realizing that there is an important effort to look this from a lifespan
1: perspective mm. and and you said that they have less less activity in school sports community activities do you know or do you have guesses why is why is that
0: uh, i think from my own work and from our own research and again research being done across the world there's a few different kind of what we would call barriers or facilitators that would kind of lower their participation uh, so one of the most biologically based ones are challenges in motor movement skills and motor impairments. So similar to kids with um, developmental coordination disorders, some work that John Kearney has been doing. Um, now he's at the University of Queensland. Our kids, we've noticed, either have issues with running, jumping, throwing, gait, walking, and You know, we used to talk about kids just being clumsy and and not being physically active and just not being able to figure out how to move their bodies. But in this case, you know, these are actual motor skill decrements. And the motor skills that are missing are missing from as young as two to four years old, right? And if we can imagine, these kids are having challenges with motor skills from childhood. And if they're not being improved in any way, they're more likely to also have these challenges as they keep getting older. So that's the biological kind of aspect. Um, From a psychosocial aspect, we also have kind of the challenges of physical activity that might be um, difficult for people with autism. So we have the social components. We know that when you're doing activity, usually as a group, um, there's lots of rules in sports and activity, right? There's lots of conventions that are supposed to be followed. So my favorite example that I like to provide Um, based on my own experience working with this population is if you're playing basketball or soccer even, right, and you have a defender and someone who's trying to score, the challenge a lot for the kids that I've worked with is getting the idea that they have to somehow get the ball off the person. They can't touch them necessarily. They have to follow the ball, get the ball, kick it or, or take it and throw it. And there's just so many different social components that come with it. And they can't necessarily always put those uh, into order or remember them all or even understand them why they're there. So things like Mm -hmm. we would talk about movement awareness for some kids who's almost, they just, you know, we always talk about kids who just get it and kids who just seem like the sporty kids and they could just figure it out. For, For this population, there's a lot more kind of explicit teaching. So it's like, these are the rules. This is what you have to do. This is why you have to do it. And we know, at least from some of my early research in public schools, you know, there isn't much focus on that um, for kids who who don't fit the the mold per se, and the, and teachers aren't trained on how to um, provide this sort of education to these kids. Um, the other piece that's important is kind of the sensory environment. So think about kind of lights, noise, touch, sweat, and again, physical activity inherently is sweaty. It's in, done in all different types of environments, and for some people with autism, those kind of sensory factors such as being hypersensitive to sweat or being hypersensitive to noise in a gym or sound. I mean, those are all things that can drive um, people away from being active. And then we have behavioral challenges, right? If you have a kid who is banging their head against the wall, I mean, it's just not feasible necessarily for a school teacher who has no training on how to redirect that behavior to then engage them in activities. Um, So it's a really messy issue. And um, complicated, <laughs> to say the least.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I started to think about when you men- mentioned the sensory environment. Is it in general with autism that they concentrate more on their feelings and sensory input than than kind of the outside world and and interacting with with other people? Yeah. And so there's no
0: real kind of concrete answer to that yet. There's a lot of research showing some of it saying yes, there's, there's a hard time interacting with the world and there's more sense of feeling um, from within. But then we're increasingly seeing, for example, people who are nonverbal with autism who are writing books and memoirs and they're seeing the opposite thing. Even though they're nonverbal, they know how to write and we're learning a lot from them just to, to understand, okay, it's not necessarily them or the autism is that's the issue, but it's also the social things that we have in our society and our expectations about what it is like to behave normally, or what it is it like to follow the rules. And for some people who have a difficult time with this based on kind of the autism impairments, um, it definitely complicates the whole situation. And then again, you put them in a physical activity environment that is often unpredictable, right? So sport is pretty unpredictable. They do different things. Um, the game mm-hmm. of sport is usually just unfolds in its own way. And you put all those unpredictable components in the way. And again, it just becomes super messy and hard to follow, and then it's not uncommon for people with autism to, to not be able to participate and sometimes um, they aren't able to.
1: Let's have a short break into interview and think about the way we work. You might be walking or going about your daily course when listening to this podcast episode, but when working on a computer we are easily stuck to static positions, whether sitting or standing. Wouldn't it be nice if you could take steps as you like? There might be a solution for you, a treadmill desk from Germany called Walkolution. Treadmill has curved shape and is powered only by you, so it moves in perfect sync with your rhythm. It features sliding integrated desk and backrest so you can keep switching between postures easily throughout the day. It makes knowledge work much better suited for our physiology, so I'm delighted as we can now offer Walkolution desk treadmill. For the listeners of this podcast with 10% discount. To get the discount use code SITLESS, one word written together in the store of walkallusion.com. That is written walk as in walking and allusion like the second part of revolution or evolution. So walkallusion.com, check it out and let's continue with the interview. And And what do you think that can be done to decrease the, the
0: barriers? So there's a few different ways that I've tried to kind of approach this in my research and my own thinking to the issue. Um, one of them is to look at how kind of social, cultural, and political factors uh, influence their participation. And oftentimes the field has been very split. It's still very much working from the kind of the body, mind, and social divide. So, you know, there's this assumption that the body doesn't speak to the mind and the mind doesn't speak to the social issues. But what I've tried to do in my work is to bring those three together um, and show that the biological, psychological and social issues actually are the reasons that our kids are not being active. So, for example, in my work with youth during my PhD, I had them create videos about uh, what is it like to be active and what would they want to see to, to be more active potentially? And we also did interviews with these kids. And one of the things that came up was bullying. And, you know, the, this social piece, which for some reason we, we know in research in autism that the bullying piece is, is a big problem and they get bullied a lot, uh, but no one in physical activity context has talked about bullying. And so I was struck by that and I really was taken aback because it's like, I never assumed that this would be a problem, uh, but it's almost naive of us to assume that it's not a problem. Um, And as a result, um, kids aren't being active. So in a way, it's it's our pedagogies have to get better um, to be more inclusive. I don't know about the global context, but at least in North America, Canada specifically, there's still a very big hyper focus on sports and becoming professioned in sports skills. I mean, for some of these kids, they might be able to do sports. For others, they're not. And I think part of our jobs as scientists and as educators is to find ways that we can engage them and whether that's doing activities such as tai chi or or yoga and not only focusing on the traditional sports such as basketball or soccer i think that's one way to approach it
1: mm. yeah and I, I think it's interesting also like what is the pe actually about what what do you try to do like you said that in U.S. it's quite a lot of sport based. I think that's the case in many countries. So, so how how is your work? You you work at the hospital. How do how how is your daily work normally?
0: Uh, so, for my PhD work, I worked at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital. So that's a kids rehab hospital, and I get to joke that I have the best job in the world. I get to hang out with kids, do research, run some programs, and then be able to think about this and innovate. Um, And so I was able to do that for my PhD in a physical activity context. Now in um, my postdoctoral context, I'm working at a psychiatric mental health hospital, um, working specifically with people who have suicidal kind of ideations, thoughts, attempts. And I'm trying to understand um, how do we potentially work with this population who, are generally inactive and are in the hospital often. And so this is obviously before COVID, what I was able to do was spend two days a week running kind of a program for them, um, just to drop in and and being a mental health hospital, they still really focus on the tr- traditional markers of mental health. So they'll focus on medication, they'll focus on psychology, kind of behavioral cognitive therapy. Um, but to me, physical activity, was a program I offered um, at our hospital. And from five participants who initially dropped in, we were at 45 and I wasn't able to offer it on my own. I needed support. Um, But to even see them just enjoying different types of fitness activities and trying different sports and being able to even just try different movement patterns that they haven't necessarily done, I think was a huge way. And again, we have no hard uh, evidence on this yet, but to see improvements in kind of mood to see their improvements in stability and even see improvements in just the social pieces. I mean, a lot of them would come to hang out with other people because they are highly isolated on their own time. Um, So that was before the COVID pandemic hit. Um, Now it's been a bit harder where we haven't been able to offer any in-person activities um, based on the hospital guidance. Um, So what I tried to do is move that online and I offered a program called Fit Friday, where every Friday online, we led activities um, with my colleague, Brianne Redquest. And we did, again, a different activity every week from Tai Chi to yoga to fitness-based exercises. And we tried to engage them as, as much as we could. But um, to me, I'm more old school, and I love and relish on the fact of being in a gym and being able to kind of hang out with people. And and show them a passion for movement that i clearly have and i think i have a potential to instill that
1: in others Mm. and and could you could you tell more about this fit friday online online course that you you developed
0: yeah absolutely um so this was really a last second idea uh, in march Um, i know the world went to lockdown in different phases but in canada we went kind of into a strict lockdown in the middle of March. And I mean, the people that I was working with in person in the gym, um, like the gymnasium running activities were reaching out and saying like, look, we have nothing, like we're really stressed, we're really anxious. Uh, We don't wanna die. And there's a lot of just misinformation happening, right? Uh, What we're seeing so far in the research is that people with autism and other um, developmental disabilities are actually contracting COVID about two to five to three times more often than people who don't have these disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, okay, like I got to do something, right? Like I, I just can't sit here, listen to, to them, listen to their struggles and, and not be able to offer anything. But at the same time, recognizing that I can't do anything in person, which again is my preference. Um, so we threw um, Fit Friday online and it was one hour every single week um, with a bit of a structure where we said, okay, every Friday, we want you to come at 2 p.m. Toronto time. And we'll lead a new activity and new initiatives, but also have you guys participate and have you maybe model skills um, that you want to do. And for me, it it was really an eye-opening moment because I never really thought that I would have an opportunity to do something online. I just never thought of it as a possibility for physical activity in this population. I know online coaching and fitness has been really popular in the fitness world, but for this population, for some reason, my own assumptions said, well, no, this won't work. But I was really surprised to, to see week after week, it just kept getting better and our numbers kept growing. And the hardest part was taking a break over the summer here in Canada um, over July and August, just because we, we want to do an evaluation piece of this program. Um, but again, to see them engage week in and week out, and sometimes we would demonstrate activities live. Sometimes we would show a video and they would model it with us. Um, mm-hmm. and I, w- I, f- I, would say the biggest piece that came out of this was the social component. And I think we all, especially during this weird time that we live in, um, the social pieces are, are hard for anyone to kind of understand and not being able to see your family or friends. But then if you add autism to the mix, you add high levels of isolation and you get rid of all the structure, routine, and supports they had at the hospital I mean, these people were at high risk for all kinds of issues. And so what I'm seeing even in the clinic still one day a week is our population is really struggling with higher rates of mental health issues than this time last year. And so for me, the physical activity piece was just kind of one component of helping people to cope. And it seemed to work really well. And we're actually just trying to figure out what our next steps would be, whether there would be another online offering or we go back to maybe in-person stuff if the
1: situation gets better. Mm. And, and how, how was the age range of the participant for this online course? Uh, it was really broad. So
0: I made it between 16 and up. Um, and part of that was because at our hospital, we generally don't see people younger than 16. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to close it off to anyone. And so what was really interesting was that we had, I would say, the most... People who participated were between 16 and, and 35. We had a few people in the 40s. We had a few in the 50s and a few in the 60s. Um, we also didn't really give it a cap. So what, one of the things I kept debating, I said, am I going to put a certain number on it? So let's say if it's 20 people, after 20 people, do I not take anymore? And we hit 20 and then I realized it's like, well, i got to do more and we can't necessarily, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say no to more people. Um, and that has its own pros and, co- and cons, right? But at the same time, leaving it open-ended to people and, and not making it really kind of a strict guideline saying you have to come by leaving it open to people and being flexible. I think that that provided kind of more flexibility to their lives. Um, and it was really cool because we had people, we had actually one person joined from Finland. We had a few people join from the United States. We had people from all across Canada and it just almost took its own life of its own. And we just kept sharing this thing. And every week we had new people joining and it was again, cool just to see How the online world, as much as it's become our new normal, um, can actually have a potential for impact in daily life, especially in this population, which again, I never thought was going to be possible. So it almost Mm. changed my own assumptions about how do we teach physical activity? Why do we do it in, in the ways that we do it? And maybe can we modernize the way that we think research and teach physical activity? And that was definitely one of the learnings coming out of this pandemic for me.
1: Mm, and that's, that's really interesting that you had actually some people even from Finland and US. So, so it would be much easier to scale this kind of thing, especially for smaller groups like, like patients. How do, you, how do you see the future? Could you expand it to be kind of a wide program that you could have people from all different countries? So how do you see the future? I mean, that's
0: a great question. The future, no one I think right now can predict accurately in any way. Um, but mm-hmm. for me personally, I think, I think I have two kind of personal objectives. And, and one is to, to teach people, um, kind of fundamental movement skills that they can use in their own lives. So one of my own personal teaching and research philosophies is if I can somehow provide the love and passion and instill the movement skills needed to participate in daily life. Um, I'm hoping that these people can then take these skills that we we have taught and do it on their own time. And so one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is, okay, so we took two months off during the summer. Did they continue to be active? If yes, what did they do? If no, maybe why not? Uh, And so that's my own kind of way to think about, okay, one way to move forward would be to try and evaluate um, what happened during the time we took off. Um, The second piece I also think is important is still to provide um, services at a time where there's so much uncertainty. And uh, again, we're working on maybe doing another online thing again, starting probably in September or October and again, to try and make it open and global. And I know that Twitter can sometimes be a very harsh place, but it's also interesting to see how quickly Twitter can become a medium for knowledge dissemination, knowledge translation and sharing. All we did was share a flyer with this link and, and it really just went viral. So um Personally, I would want to keep it open um, to a broader range of people internationally. Uh, But then if we were to do a research component on it, we'd probably have to scale it back a little bit so that we can actually evaluate kind of impact and and if it's effective or not. I think I'm partly torn on the issue because I think the more people, the better. But then again, for scientific purposes, we have to somewhat follow our own methods as well, right? So Hmm. it's something we're still working with. And I actually have a call today about trying to figure out um, the next steps and funding because again when you start to grow things bigger um, there's obviously time and funding implications that kind of come into the mix
1: thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for your support if you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on the Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.